Welcome. My name is Gilly, and this is Gilly Mack in the Wayback Podcast. Episode 4, Silly Foodies Unite. get right into it. We're going to be talking about food, F-O-O-D, glorious food in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a iconic foodie city. We have the cheesesteak, we have cheesecake, we have soft pretzels, water ice, we have just a smorgasbord of treats to eat. And we're going to get into it. What makes Philadelphia a foodie city? Why is Philadelphia so uh, robust with the delicious dishes? I don't know, but I'm not complaining. So I'm also going to tie in some of the Philadelphia dishes to my childhood and sweet memories of growing up and enjoying the delicacies that are so synonymous with Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But first, let's hear what the Food Network's Duff Goldman says about Philadelphia food. I'm a regular visitor of Philadelphia. Come up here for vacation from Baltimore. You know, it's close and you can go to all these great restaurants. And it's, you know, this is my probably my favorite food town in the United States. I am a huge fan of Steven Stark. I just think the guy is such a weirdo when it comes to like designing restaurants and putting things together. And I think it's really cool. I, I just, I love the fact that he really, I think single-handedly kind of changed the face of, of, of fine dining. Like, rather than, like, pod, you know, like, when that first came out, like, people were like, what is going on? Like, Philly is, like, the East Coast San Francisco. You get to Philly, and it's like, man, Philly's got, like, the pod, that's crazy. That's a crazy restaurant. You know, and just, I mean, Morimoto is probably one of my favorite chefs in the universe because he is a robot genius from the future and i love the guy and it's just one of my favorite places here's the thing about philly uh if you're from philly and you're listening to this uh please know that the rest of the world looks at philly and they're jealous of your food i promise and if you're not from philly and you've never been here and you're thinking about coming somewhere to the east coast come to philly and eat the food because the food is amazing Next up, cheesesteaks. Some say cookbooks offered beefsteak sandwiches as far back as the 1800s. But the cheesesteak as we know and love it traces back to the 1930s when South Philly hot dog stand owner Pat Oliveri made his living serving local workers and residents near the city's famed open-air Italian market. As legend has it, tired of his own franks and fish cakes, Pat one day gets a hankering for something different. He asks his younger brother Harry to go get scraps of meat from the butcher down the street. Hungrier for lunch than he is for innovation or fame and fortune, Pat frizzles the beef and puts it on a hot dog roll. Simple, but the unfamiliar aroma of fried steak and onions teases the city blocks and rinds of patients. 
one customer, a local cab driver, requests a taste. So he and Pat end up sharing the world's first Philly steak. Word spreads fast. The Oliveri brothers soon ditch their dogs and go all in on steak sandwiches. Nearly 90 years later, Pat's King of Steaks is one of the most iconic food establishments of any kind anywhere in the world. Despite its growing popularity, the Philly steak didn't become a Philly cheesesteak until roughly a decade later, when cocky Joe Lorenzo, a manager at a second Pat's location, decided to add some sliced provolone. This marked the first known appearance of cheese on the Philly steak sandwich. Fast forward another decade or so and we get the introduction of liquid cheese ribs. Kraft's processed sauce, which has become the de facto standard for many cheesesteak connoisseurs over the years, became a hit among the increasing number of steak shops because of how fast and easy it was to slather onto an open steak. In the 60s, a feisty new challenger took the city of brotherly love by storm. Preceding Rocky Balboa by a decade, second-generation restaurateur Joey Vento opened Gino's Steaks at the same notorious South Philly intersection as Pat's. Attracting attention with Vegas-like lights and shameless claims of superiority, this spawned the enduring and endearing Pat's versus Gino's rivalry, igniting a passionate debate among cheesesteak aficionados and casual tasters alike about which serves the better cheesesteak. cheesecake I can't eat it much now but when I was younger that was my go-to dessert and of course you cannot make delicious cheesecake without Philadelphia cream cheese and um, you know Philadelphia hey giving another shout out so I remember one time you know when I was in the heyday of my cheesecake eating days I went to a local ice cream store where they had all these different flavors of ice cream. And um, even though I like my riches, I like my sweets, I'm kind of simple when it comes to my ice creams. I enjoy some of the caramel and nuts and nougat and all of those little things that you can put in ice cream, but my favorite ice cream is vanilla. You know, I'm pretty good with vanilla ice cream. And I know a lot of people consider that plain, but hey, vanilla ice cream is just delish. Well, anyway, I was at this ice cream store. And like I said, this was my cheesecake eating heyday. And I was looking at the different flavors and I thought I'd be a little adventurous. And um, I spotted Philadelphia cheesecake ice cream. I'm like, what? You have my favorite dessert of all time cheesecake with ice cream which i love how could this be anything but right so i ordered not one but two scoops of philadelphia cheesecake ice cream on a sugar cone a sugar waffle cone mm, it looked good it had little bits of graham cracker crust in it. It had that nice silky look to the ice cream. I knew that I was about to bite into some dessert heaven. And I took my first lick and something didn't compute. I didn't get a sensation of sweetness and creaminess. It was kind of sour, almost like milk that's gone spoiled. 
They said, hmm, that can't be right. Let me give this thing another look. Did it again. Ugh, it was gross. I never tasted baby vomit, but it was the equivalent of what I would assume baby vomit to taste like. I couldn't believe it. Everything was gummy and gross and sour. It just did not work. I was convinced that the ice cream had gone bad. I even went up to the person at the counter and said, hey, you know, I think this ice cream is no good. It doesn't taste right. It's sour. Ugh. You know, I was physically getting ill, as a matter of fact. It just was so off-putting. So the person, they sampled a little bit of the ice cream. They were like, oh, it tastes fine to me. You know, maybe it's just a, a certain preference. And I'm scratching my head because I absolutely love cheesecake. As a matter of fact, I love cheese. My mom used to call me a little mouse when I was a baby because I love cheese. And I love ice cream. So how could it be a preference? My preferences would be set to think that this was the best dessert ever made. But it was the grossest. And so... I learned a very valuable lesson that day. I learned that sometimes you can have too much of a good thing. Which brings me to just because it was made in Philly doesn't mean that it's good. Now, I know some people will disagree with me, but that brings me to the next food that we'll be talking about. Philadelphia founded Scrapple. Scrapple is like if a person went into a butcher shop that only sold really... (laughs) Okay, take two. Scrapple is like if someone went into a butcher shop with a stick of dynamite and stuck it directly into the mouth of a pig and blew that pig up and then proceeded to take all the bits of flesh and fat and other internal organs that was emitted from that pig and blend it all up with some mushy other stuff that they found on the ground along with the blown up pig and decided to package it as a breakfast meat that really wasn't meat because it was so mushy and full of other good I don't know why I can't talk about Scrapple. Maybe because I feel like Scrapple is extremely gross, but I know that a lot of people like it, and my mother is one of them. It's not good for you because it's a lot of fat and grease and mush, but um, I guess it's an acquired taste. And I have had Scrapple over the years when I was younger, and I could appreciate it if it was fried hard on the outside, you know, crispy, and then inside it had that little mushy part, but That wasn't so bad if the outside was crispy. But overall, I feel that Scrapple is pretty gross. And it is um, something that was founded or scraped up here in Philadelphia. This segment on YouTube from Weird Foods best describes Scrapple. That is Scrapple. Gray mystery meat looks like it came from a horse. All right, guys, so Scrapple. What the heck is Scrapple? Never heard of Scrapple. This was sent in uh, by a subscriber. He sent us... <laughs> looks just. It looks horrible, guys. It's got like... It's like a gray meat. Looks like a meatloaf. 
But guys, what Scrapple is, is kind of all the extra little bits and parts um, from a pig. After they get all the cuts, there's always leftover stuff on the bone, leftover stuff on the head. And all that stuff kind of goes to waste unless you do something with it or you take the time to really pick through it. So what this is, is all of that stuff. Um, I don't know if it's kind of boiled off and then put together and then pounded into this brick of gray meat. With that, my friends, is Scrapple. Apparently, there's a lot of ways to eat this. Apparently, everyone who eats this is from Pennsylvania. So we're going to try this stuff up now. I've been told what we need to do is cut this stuff into about a half-inch, quarter-inch slices. Uh, get it real thin. And then we're going to fry it up. Another favorite Philadelphia treat for me is the soft pretzel, the Philadelphia soft pretzel. There have been other cities that have tried to make a soft pretzel, like New York, and they failed miserably. I remember when I went on a school trip and uh, we went to New York and there were vendors out front and they were selling soft pretzels. And I was like, hey, I'm going to get a soft pretzel because in my mind, I was thinking that it would taste like the soft pretzels from Philly. Now, I already knew that something was a little off because um, the vendor, they were, you know, cooking the pretzels, but it kind of smelled burnt. You know, it had this really strong odor to the pretzel, like it had been burnt or that, you know, singed or, or something. But I, I chose to overlook that. Well, that was a big mistake because, in fact, uh, the pretzel tasted like um, a charcoal coal. It was flavorless uh and it just had this strong taste and aroma of just like burnt cinder and ash it was very gross and it was humongous it was very very large just cooked terribly and you know that day i realized that philadelphia soft pretzels are the best there's no ifs ands or buts about it and um, I would be sticking to what I need best. So I shared my love of Philadelphia soft pretzels. I think they're the absolute best, but you have to be careful because you just can't get a Philadelphia soft pretzel from anywhere. You have to choose carefully what facility you'll get your pretzel from. I made that mistake because uh, unlike the New York situation where the pretzel was atrocious and it tastes like burnt cinder, uh, in Philadelphia, I noticed that there's a tendency, and maybe this is just the, the way things are with food services, that you know you leave your bread out in the morning, but soft pretzels is another thing that is left outside. You know, you might see a box of soft pretzels uh, on the ground, in a box, but on the ground in front of a, a store that hasn't opened yet, or you'll see a vendor um, a vendor who may look a little questionable as far as his or her hygiene um, with some pretzels that may also look a little questionable as to their freshness, um, which brings me back in our way back travels to 1995 when Channel 10 News did an expose about 
soft pretzel vendors. I will share that with you now as we travel way back. Streets of Philadelphia, 1995. Who could forget this pretzel vendor? First, he gargled with coffee. Then he uses it to wash off his hands. He later tops it all off by putting the pee in pretzels when he urinates behind a tree. We saw you going to the bathroom. Maybe, maybe, maybe. You don't remember that? Maybe, maybe, maybe. How about this vendor? His uncovered pretzels were for the birds. If the birds ever defecated on the pretzels, I would throw them away. Have they ever done that? Yes, they did. Plenty of times. I threw them away. I never sold nothing that wasn't good. You know, I don't, I'm not like that. I'm clean. I'm clean. So where can you go to get a clean, soft pretzel? Well, I would highly recommend not buying a pretzel off of the street. Your best bet is to go into a store um, where the person who is handing you your pretzel has on gloves. And then you can have a really joyous experience with a clean, delicious, soft pretzel. Which brings me to the next foodie choice for Philadelphians, our water ice. The delicious, sweet um, treat that, you know, is absolutely a favorite. Now, other places call it shaved ice, but nah, it's water ice. Let's delve into that, shall we? This was taken from YouTube's Water Ice 101, your guide to Philadelphia's favorite frozen treat. Let's take a listen. Water ice is a Philadelphia signature food. The fruity frozen treat is enjoyed every summer in the city of brotherly love. But what is water ice? And why is it so popular? We talked to John Italiano of old school favorite, Pop's homemade Italian ice since 1932. And Kirk Hightower and Brittany Colaferio of the new Kylie and Milan's Tropical Treats to find out. The Philadelphia water ice is like one of the biggest things in history. It's been around for many, many, many years. It's a combination of sugar, water, and various fruits. It's pretty much flavored uh, with ice, and they combine it and make it with water ice. It's a concert food. It's a feel-good summer treat. Um, in, in our location here, we're so fortunate to have people come back year after year that you know they like to share it with their sons, and their sons like to share it with their sons, and it's a multi-generational thing. And most importantly, it's Philadelphia's best way to and of course, there's a big question. How do you pronounce it? It's water ice. <laughs> I say water ice. Some people say it's W-A-T-E-R ice, but in fact, W-A-D-E-R water ice. Of course, no Philadelphia foodie tour is complete without the hoagie. That's right, the Philadelphia hoagie. I remember in my youth when I used to get Italian hoagies, then I evolved to turkey hoagies, then to chicken salad hoagies, and then I became a vegetarian and I would just have cheese hoagies. Yes, let's look into the hoagie. ABC Discovery Team as we investigate the controversial and mispronounced origins of the hoagie. You mean hoagie? Uh, Philly's official sandwich. 
Now, how did we end up here? A nation of large sandwiches with an equally large identity crisis. Every region of the U.S. has a sandwich our immigrant ancestors brought with them from their homeland. Each of these culinary creations have been anointed with nicknames that have come to define a sandwich's region of origin from around the country. Whether it's the toasted grinder in the Northeast or the hero from New York City, the po'boy in Louisiana, or the sub, as it's known just about everywhere else in the country, the sandwich, with its basic recipe of meats, cheese, and toppings, served on a long roll, has many names. But everyone here in Philly knows that our classic Italian sandwich has only one name, the hoagie. You mean hoagie, don't you? Yeah, yeah, that too, the hoagie. Wait, that sounds like two names. I thought you said it only had one name. Yeah, yeah, I did. Let me explain. You see, back in the early 20th century, Hog Island was a tiny piece of land on the Delaware River, where Philly International Airport now sits. On that island sat a shipyard which employed immigrant labor to build its ships. The Italians working on Hog Island enjoyed a sandwich of meat, cheese, and lettuce between two slices of bread for lunch each day. This became known as the Hog Island Sandwich, or Hoggy. Now, some smart experts have found references to different spellings in local phone books well into the 1950s, at which time, through Philadelphians' tendency to elongate their vowels, the name gradually changed to the one we know today, the hoagie. You mean hoagie? No, no, I mean hoagie. See, you didn't know that I was going to educate you on the foods, did you? So that was more than uh, enough of explanation or about a hoagie. Uh, so, what food can we learn about next? What's next on the Philadelphians list of foods to eat? Speaking of candy, we cannot forget Philadelphia own Goldenberg's peanut cheese in two flavors, original dark chocolate and milk chocolate. So I am going to play a little clip from a YouTube reviewer on the Goldenberg's peanut chew. Let's take a listen. Goldenberg's peanut chews have the original dark here and the milk chocolatey flavors, which are the only two flavors of the peanut chews. <laughs> now, for such a, not to be, you know, doing a disservice, um, but uh, the packaging pretty generic, pretty bland. I saw this in a uh, in a dollar store, and I was like, I don't know what those are. Sure, I'll try them. But uh, these have like a long and storied history. Um, and if you are in the Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York sort of areas, you probably know know these quite well. Um, definitely uh, Philly. This is uh, is a, a creation that's been around for a long time. This bar. Um, in uh, recruited in 1917 by Romanian immigrants in Philadelphia, um, the uh, the Goldenbergs was the family name, and uh, they created the peanut chews. It's uh, peanuts and molasses coated in um, well, it's not chocolate. It's like you know that compound chocolate, right? Chocolatey chocolate. Um, <laughs> but uh, created in 1917, and then they were actually um, sent off to uh, as a as a military ration in um, in World War One. When I think back to my childhood memories of um, 
besides my family around food, I think of the barbecue. And I don't know about you, but for the black family, barbecues are a staple of the summer. And without fail, no matter where you go, no matter who uh, house you go to for a barbecue, there's going to be certain foods that is just a given. It has to be at a black barbecue. That could be chicken, baked macaroni and cheese, some type of pasta salad, corn on the cob, of course you have your hamburgers, and you have to have potato salad. And if you're real special, you can get deviled eggs. I love barbecues because the food is delicious most of the time, but it's also an opportunity for families to catch up on what's going on in each other's lives. It's a time to have fun and be festive with music and dancing and singing and telling old stories and embellishing them. And for family and friends just to get together and commune and, you know, eat good food and have a great time. That's something that I definitely miss as I've gotten older. And now because of the quarantine, a lot of people haven't been able to have the barbecues the way we used to. Um, you know, I'm gonna let you in a little secret that hasn't stopped some black families from still doing their barbecues. Don't tell nobody. But um, Philadelphia, you know, is um, a city that is identified by its history as well as its food. But for me, the barbecue is a standout and also my grandmother's cooking uh, she was a pretty great cook to be honest with you but there are her signature dishes i would say that i miss so much and it's never been replicated and even when i tried i failed miserably one would be her hot apple pie mm, with that flaky, buttery crust made from scratch, and the apples just so delicious and cinnamony and sweet and gooey. Just the best apple pie ever. And she would do the lattice work on the pie crust, so sometimes she would do that. Most of the time she would just make the crust and she would, you know, it would cover all of the apples and then it would have the little holes in it so that all of the bubbly goodness can kind of start coming out when it gets hot just so delicious she also made pretty good sweet potato pies um but another staple of my grandmother's that she was famous for uh by the family were her hot rolls she made delicious homemade rolls that had butter melted on top and they were sweet and fluffy and just great and i'm also made a pretty mean cupcake you know, so when I think about my childhood, you know, I think about friends, I think about family, but I think about food <laughs> and it makes me happy. And if I was to go down and make a cup of Nestle Quick chocolate milk, that would take me back to the age of eight. You know, that's probably the last time that I had uh, chocolate milk uh, or strawberry quick. You know, it makes me think 
uh, back to my family. And then when I think of my great-grandmother, she was a really great cook too. And after church on Sundays, all of her grandchildren and great-grandchildren would come over to the house for dinner um, because she lived close to the family church. And I remember she used to make kale. She would boil the kale. And this is before kale got all like hippie, uh, hipster famous. Um, we're talking years and years ago. Um, but it was my great grandmother who introduced me to kale and she made it really great. My great grandmother also boiled her water. So this was before the um, water purifier. She would just get her water. She would boil it on the stove let it cool and then she would pour it into um, a gallon uh, old milk pitcher, a gallon milk pitcher. She would pour the water into that and uh, purify her own water. And she was old school. And my great grandmother would always have two um, staple cereals on top of her refrigerator, sometimes three, um, but it would always be Apple Jacks and Fruit Loops were out there, and I love them both. So I think Apple Jacks were my favorite. I maybe felt that they were healthier some kind of way because they were called Apple Jacks and they had little bits of cinnamon, um, but Fruit Loops, were they were good too. So she would have the Apple Jacks and she would have the Fruit Loops, and then on some occasions there would be um, Frosted Flakes or Rice Krispies, yeah. Good times, good memories, good food. Now, time for a little bit of history. The oldest restaurant in the world is in Madrid, Spain, and that restaurant dates back to the 1700s. But for the United States of America, a much younger civilization, if you will, the oldest restaurant that has been operating continuously by one family is Ralph's in South Philadelphia. So let's do a little bit about Ralph's. This is Ralph's Italian restaurant, and it's been serving Philly's best spaghetti and meatballs for 120 years. We like traditional Italian red gravy Sunday dinner. This is the place to come. Back in the kitchen, chefs stay busy making 1,200 meatballs a week. The meatballs, set beside spaghetti, have been a staple at Ralph's since the restaurant's very first menu in 1900. I mean, this is stuff that my great-grandparents brought over. My grandparents made them. My parents made them. I'd say about 95% of the menu that you see now is still the original menu. It's authentic South Philly. It's red sauce. It's, good. it's just good Italian food. But what's going on during the coronavirus? COVID-19, how is it affecting all these wonderful restaurants and food vendors in Philadelphia? What's going on? Seriously, you know, it's interesting because some restaurants have closed down and some have adjusted. Um, this is an excerpt that I'm gonna share from uh, local NBC 10 News about a local restaurant um, that'll be closing its doors because of the coronavirus and how it's affecting other Philadelphia restaurants. Let's take a listen. Struggle is happening at neighborhood restaurants and bars across the state and country. Today, lawmakers hearing from some in Harrisburg. You know, we're limping along here and we need help. 
When the coronavirus really came into full swing in Philadelphia, there was almost a sense of pandemonium as people rushed to the stores to pack up on food and ammunition and whatever they could get their hands on, especially toilet paper. Uh, I'm going to play an excerpt from the local Channel 10 news broadcast. Take a listen. COVID-19 fears causing a rush at the grocery store and crowds at the Pennsylvania liquor stores before statewide shutdown. I think we are, uh, we're good until who knows how long this will last. Now, the virus has triggered more interest in guns. I'm afraid that if stuff gets worse, people are, people are going to try to loot me. You know, I want my protection. Anthony Martino took an Uber to the gun shop at Knight and Ellsworth near the Italian market. He walked into a line outside the door. Did you check the line like this? I did not expect the line. I took an Uber here, yeah. and I was expecting to walk right in. That I didn't expect. NBC News reports similar lines outside stores coast to coast, with a surge in handguns, shotguns, and AR-style rifles. It's primarily for self-defense. Ammo.com reports a 70% boost in sales. Anthony Martino tried to buy his gun online, but the website was down forcing him to take a number. I wanted to get here fast to get my, to get a stock up on my ammo as well. Because I'm afraid once they close and that happens, there's nothing. Again, state liquor stores close at 7 o'clock. Local distilleries are also thinking outside the box during this coronavirus shutdown. A few blocks away at Philadelphia Distilling, they're doing a drive-through bottle pickup, which means customers can order online and pick up the bottle without even stepping outside the car. In Northern Liberties, I'm Brandon Hudson, ABC 10 News. With many restaurants and bars having to shut their doors amid the pandemic, a group of local organizers wanted to help. So they cooked up an initiative to help keep their favorite eateries in business. Why don't you guys offer things now so we can order them now and then you'll, 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 you'll let us actually have them later. Pay now, enjoy later. That's the motto of the new Save Philly Eats initiative, helping to keep local restaurants and bars afloat. We can, you know, sort of fund things like uh, the, the the rent we have, the, 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 the health insurance we have, and all those things. A small group of organizers teamed up with Philly restaurateur Mark Vetri to bring in other local favorites. Us, obviously, Zahav, uh, Nick Elmi's in it, uh, Jen Carroll's in it, um, Verne. Orders are placed through SaveFillyEats.com and include special offers like an in-home dinner and cocktails prepared by top chefs private tours, and gift cards. We launched it uh, two days ago, and it's been like selling out right away. We've been offering things, you know, we've been adding things. With more than 4,000 layoffs in the Philly area alone, this initiative allows restaurants and bars to keep 100% of the proceeds. These months, I think they're going to be super hard on the, the industry. Safe to Leads has been really, really amazing for us, and uh, the guys, you know, who, who organize it are just like, they're really helping us out a lot. From five-star cuisines to mom and pop shops, there's something for everyone, but only one mission in mind. We're all in the same boat. There, there isn't any big shots right now. We're all just for those restaurants. We're just to make a living. It's this episode of Gilly Mac and the Way Back and Philly Foodies Unite. 
it is only appropriate that we end with a list of notable favorites that may not have been delved in during this episode. We have Briar's Ice Cream, 153 years old. We have Zittner's Buttercrack Easter Eggs, 85 years old. We have Philadelphia-owned Tasty Cakes, about 105 years old. We have Frank's Black Cherry Wishinick Soda, 70 years old. Hers Potato Chips, Good and Plenty Candy, 126 years old. We have Pepper Pot Stew, which is 263 years old. We have Switzel's Spice Wafers, AKA Ginger Snaps, about 100 years old. We have Taylor's Pork Roll, 163 years old. And we have Hires Root Beer, 143 years old. All of these foods started in Philadelphia. And the last one is the Irish potato. That's right, you heard me correctly. Irish potato, which is neither Irish or a potato. It is a candy that was created in Philadelphia. And it is a combination of cream cheese, confectionery sugar, coconut, etc., etc. Well, there is a large Irish American population here in Philadelphia, and perhaps that's the origins of that. But it started in Philadelphia, and uh, I just want to say that you know I am happy to be a Philadelphia foodie, and once this quarantine is over, we definitely need to unite. Let's do lunch. This is Gilly Mack in the Wayback Podcast, letting you know that what's old is new and what's new is socially distant. So remember, keep safe, wear your mask, wash your hands, and be kind. Before we go, I have to give an important update. Unfortunately, due to coronavirus, we had to postpone some of the events that were scheduled for this summer. The Wayback Experience, um, time travel uh, will happen hopefully in the fall of 2020, but if not, definitely by 2021. Also, Sassy Sadie Storytime for Grown Folks, the virtual experience. We're definitely looking forward to having that happen. And please stay tuned for more information about that. We are also happy to share with you that we've been working on our website and we've launched a new product line called Stone Culture, which are couture, paperweights, trivets, drawer stops, and other novelties. Stay tuned while we give you more information about how you can um, go onto the website and take a look at Stone Culture and hopefully buy some things that will suit your taste. We're really excited about this experience to share with you through Gilly Mac and the Wayback, and we look forward to doing many more events with you in the near future. Take care and be safe. This podcast was brought to you by Filthy Philly Antics, Soft Pretzels and Water Ice, Tasty Cakes, Frank Soda, not really, Open fire hydrants and chicken cheesesteak hoagies. Go Eagles!